Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with more damning texts and emails from court filings in the case of Dominion Voting Systems versus Fox News, which reveal how Fox's top anchors like Tucker Carlson thought that the January 6th insurrection would spell the end of Trump, about whom Carlson said, quote, I hate him passionately. Joining us is Ben Jacobs, a political reporter based in Washington, D.C., who is covering the 2024 election and the select congressional committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol at Vox. He has covered three presidential campaigns and countless federal and state campaigns, as well as Capitol Hill, the White House, and the Supreme Court. And we will discuss his latest articles at Vox. CPAC used to be a barometer. Now it's all about Trump and Donald Trump is now fully at war with the Republican Party's past. Then we look into the possibility that the Saudi war against Yemen, one of the world's poorest countries that has cost 400,000 lives and brought about the world's worst humanitarian disaster, according to the UN, might end with a peace deal between the Saudis and the Houthis. Joining us to discuss the first ship to dock in the Houthi port of Hadida following the lifting of the Saudi blockade is Anel Sheline, a research fellow at the Middle East Program at the Quincy Institute and an expert on religious and political authority in the Middle East and North Africa. She has worked as a journalist in Egypt and Yemen, was recently a fellow at the Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy, and is currently completing a book on the strategic use of religious authority in the Arab monarchies since 9-11, focusing on the cases of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Morocco, and Oman. We will discuss her article at the American Prospect, Exit Yemen Now to Assist a Fragile Peace. Then finally, we examine the threadbare nature of NATO's military readiness after decades of U.S. pressure to buy American weapons while neglecting manpower, maintenance, and ammunition stockpiles. Joining us is Max Bergman, the director of the Europe Programme and the Stewart Centre in Euro-Atlantic and Northern European Studies at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. Previously, he served in the U.S. Department of State from 2011 to 2017 in a number of different positions, including as a member of the Secretary of State's Policy Planning Staff, Special Assistant to the Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security, Speechwriter to then Secretary of State John Kerry, and Senior Advisor to the Assistant Secretary of State for Political Military Affairs. We will discuss his article at Foreign Affairs, Why European Defense Still Depends on America. Don't Believe the Hype. The War in Ukraine Has Led to Little Change. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. 
And joining us now is Ben Jacobs, a political reporter based in Washington, D.C., who is covering the 2024 election and the select congressional committees investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol at Vox. He has covered three presidential campaigns and countless federal and state campaigns, as well as Capitol Hill, the White House and the Supreme Court. And his latest articles at Vox are Donald Trump is now fully at war with the Republican Party's past and CPAC used to be a barometer and now it's all about Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ben Jacobs. Thanks for having me. And on uh, yesterday on Wednesday, there were m more release of court filings from the Dominion Voting Systems company that's suing Fox News that are particularly revealing, although... What we've learned so far is that Fox's news is hardly a news business because they're essentially afraid to tell the truth because telling the truth is bad for business. So <laughs> what kind of a news operation is that? Well, I mean, I think Fox Fox's always had to have had to walk its own delicate dance uh, between its uh, news side and its opinion side and how to how to deal deal with all this stuff but it's but it's the type of thing in which uh it, it's very clear that they're uh they're so you know they they're so beholden to their viewers that it's created a lot of uh, uh you know a lot of you know issues in which uh you know the viewers aren't locked there with locked in there with fox the uh, fox is locked in there with its viewers and that's created some real issues at this point for it to continue to be viable but I think, uh, and maybe you agree with me, Ben, that historians will look at the period just immediately after January the 6th and, and speculate about, you know, whether or not that was the time to get rid of Trump. And it seemed to be when you had McCarthy and McConnell making powerful speeches condemning him. And then, but now we're learning, of course, it's similarly at Fox News, that people like Tucker Carlson they also thought that it was going to be all over for Trump. And Tucker Carlson said, I hate him passionately. So what happened in terms of that missed opportunity? Or do you see it as a missed opportunity? Well, well, you know, I think this has been covered, you know, pretty, pretty extensively. And, you know, that this is, you know, that there have been, you know, Jonathan Martin, Alex Burns's best-selling book, uh, This Will Not Pass, covered this quite a bit. But there's the the belief by Republicans that somehow that Trump would would fade away on his own that this was the death knell that they didn't need to need to you know finish him and the fact that they didn't um allow this to continue and started to see the uh the immediate backlash um from from voters and sort of everyone sort of didn't want to didn't want to risk that fight and confrontation and sort of it it let it let things slip out of their grasp and Trump was able to able to wriggle away to survive another day in a in an environment where it certainly had a lasting political impact and lasting partisan impact as we can see from the issues with trump back candidates election dying candidates in 2022 um but uh, but he you know certainly remains a major force in the republican in american politics and the republican front runner for the presidency right now so just to touch on your recent article uh ben jacobs Donald Trump is now fully at war with the Republican Party's past. Uh, Trump took the stage of CPAC, blasted his own party and declared, I am your retribution. Just to read what Trump said, in 2016, I declared, I am your voice. Today, I add, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. 
you know, that is so fascistic. It scares the hell out of me. I mean, it has echoes of Hitler and Mussolini. How did it strike you? It it's it was bizarre language, and it sort of wasn't quite clear what what he was the retribution for. I mean, it was a sense that what he always has been is sort of speaking as the voice of you know voice of anger on behalf of his supporters and whatever in the variety of grievances that they have but but it was sort of language that was i think very much deliberate it was in remarks that had been you know prepared remarks that had been sent out as excerpts to reporters that this was on the teleprompter this was sort of a planned a, you know planned way to try to try to f- take advantage of the rare moment he would actually get uh, television coverage on Fox, which is still trying to move him away. And this full attention from uh, from national reporters that it, it, it was an intentional move, an intentional attempt to try to shape the debate within the 2024 Republican primary. So is it hyperbole on my part to suggest that the echoes of Adolf Hitler's claims that the elites had stabbed Germany in the back? Uh, it, it, probably a little bit too far to compare, compare anyone to Hitler, but in terms of, you know, obviously tapping into this illiberal vein in uh, modern politics in terms of, you know, you can run through run through politicians in, in other parts of the world in terms of folks like uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary, that in terms of touching on, on you know, this, this you know, populist, populist rage that, you know, there are elites set against you um, and putting that particular tone, but that's, that's, you know that always saying you know that 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 type of dynamics always been a feature in in politics going back but this had a particularly grim sort of populist tone that that did not necessarily fit into traditional american politics that you know it's hard to imagine ronald reagan or george bush either george bush or mitt romney or john mccain going up there and saying i am your retribution um that it, that it was something that was deeply discordant with the way that American politics has, has worked in modern times, that it's, it, you know, would have harkened back to entirely, you know, different sense of 1890s populist reactions, you know, something out of Pitchfork Ben, ben Tillman rather than, uh, than out of, uh, you know, something, you know, Paul Ryan or Romney would say. Sure. But he certainly did lay on the victimization pretty thickly than, and portraying himself as this sort of innocent, honest man who's, just to quote him, corrupt democratic prosecutors funded by the George Soros money machine sought to stop an epic struggle to rescue our country. I had a beautiful life before this. I didn't know the word subpoena. I didn't know the word grand jury. I didn't know that they want to lynch you for doing nothing wrong. We're going to complete the mission. We're going to see this battle through to ultimate victory. We're going to make America great again. Yes, um, <laughs> victimization has been, you know, has been a part of things since day one. Since you know, claiming he's been a victim since since he went down 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 the the, the escalator in 2015, and and of course the level of you know hyperbole is a guy who's been involved with major legal disputes who, you know, was early in his career with a major federal uh, federal lawsuit for racial discrimination and housing in the 1970s that, you know, none of this, none of this is new that the sense of victimization, um, you know, is is something that runs straight through entirely through uh, his, uh, his, his entire career, even, even, even before, uh, even before his political career. Uh, but, you know, th- it's part of his own 
unique personality traits that are uh, a standard of how Trump, you know, has, has approached the world in his mindset. So the CPAC, uh, he spoke on Saturday night, and CPAC had a straw poll in terms of the who they favored as for the next Republican nominee for president. And Trump won, what, by a margin of three to one over DeSantis. Yes, um, and that actually seemed surprisingly low under the circumstances of who was attending, that this was entirely a Trump event. It felt like a Trump rally. And, uh, you know, 60 some percent of the attendees who voted, voted, supported Trump and 20 percent voted for DeSantis. But that's still, uh, you know, compared to, you know, compared to the fact that this was almost entirely a Trump show that almost seemed a little bit low under the circumstances that this, for all intents and purposes, could have been been a Trump rally uh, when he was speaking with the people who, you know, follow Trump around the country and go to every Trump rally like he's the Grateful Dead. Um so there was there's that vibe was very much throughout that this was not uh, not a straw poll of grassroots conservatives or the most zealous Republican conservatives. This was entirely a Trump show. So when do you think we'll get a real kind of I mean, using the word scientific, maybe a bit much. But when do you think we'll get a real sense of what the polls are? Not that uh, DeSantis has announced he's running, but he clearly is planning on. Clearly is that I think I think we'll get a better sense of what the race looks like once DeSantis is in. That at this point, you know, DeSantis is benefiting from very soft coverage on Fox. That you know, folks folks who are pro DeSantis don't have to aren't they haven't been forced to choose between Trump and DeSantis. But once he gets in the race, um, that that changes everything. There's you know the Mike Tyson line: everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, mm-hmm. and. You know that that'll be what what happens when DeSantis gets in the race, and that there'll be, you know, uh, to use another conservative line, a time for choosing, and that you know, at this point, you can you can both be pro-Trump and pro-DeSantis um, if you're a regular everyday Republican, as opposed to an operative or influencer, and that when folks are forced to sort of start to make a hierarchy of choices and seeing them go into each other in debates that's when we'll start to get a better sense of what's going on and what what this looks like. So I also wanted to explore with you, uh, Ben Jacobs, what Tucker Carlson has shown on Fox, mm-hmm. where he, he was given access to, what, 41,000 videos of uh, what happened on January the 6th from the internal security cameras at the Capitol. And that in itself is pretty amazing that the speaker gave this treasure or this trove to Tucker Carlson, who then presented, what, a 45-minute clip of uh, what was a sort of love fest, completely cutting out any of the violence that we all saw. We all saw it in real time. And all of those congressmen and senators and their staffers were terrified. It's hard to believe that anybody in the House and Senate would ever support this revisionist history. But it's making its way. I mean, it feels like a juggernaut. How, do you think they're going to be successful in in turning these insurrectionists into heroes and martyrs? I mean, I I I I'm not sure if that that's the full intent in terms of sort of what 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 sort of popped up there. That it, it's just to sow some sow some doubt that the Tucker Carlson show on Tuesday night, you know, dealt with you know whether the Capitol you know failures at the Capitol police. And you know the lack of being prepared for stuff. That this is this is not so much an element to convince people not to see what they they obviously saw, but it's uh, you know it's an effort to uh, 
to create sort of create more doubt and in terms of what we saw and sort of create more reasons to sort of push back on this. Um, and it's also a question of how much it actually is is effective that you know that a lot of this this stuff is geared towards Republican base voters that you know that it's not necessarily the swing voters in the suburbs who are watching Tucker Carlson or being persuaded by this that this is an effort uh, by McCarthy to reassure the folks who were opposed to a speakership bid uh, to to you know to show that he's on their side. And that this is this is it's probably not ideal to view this as as a broader persuasion attempt, but maybe to simply to back some doubt and to you know reinforce the base's priors rather than anything else. Well, Ben Jacobs, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I'm speaking with Ben Jacobs, who's a political reporter based in Washington D.C., who is covering the 2024 election and the Select Congressional Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol at Vox. He has covered three presidential campaigns and countless federal and state campaigns, as well as Capitol Hill, the White House, and the Supreme Court. And his latest articles at Vox are: Donald Trump is now fully at war with the Republican Party's past, and CPAC used to be a barometer, and now it's all about Trump. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into the possibility that the Saudi war against Yemen, one of the world's poorest countries that has cost 400,000 lives and brought about the world's worst humanitarian disaster, according to the UN, might end in a peace deal between the Saudis and the Houthis. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Anel Sheline, who is a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute and an expert on religious and political authority in the Middle East and North Africa. She's worked as a journalist in Egypt and Yemen, was recently a fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy, and is currently completing a book on the strategic use of religious authority in the Arab monarchies since 9-11, focusing on the cases of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Morocco, and Oman. And she has an article at the American Prospect, Exit Yemen Now to Assist a Fragile Peace. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anel Sheline. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And the blockade of the port of Hodeidah in Yemen has been lifted by the Saudis. And this is a Houthi-held port. And a container ship has just arrived with much-needed supplies. So it makes you wonder why... The Saudis have been been bombing the hell out of the country instead of using their deep pockets to feed and take care of the people. So what's the next stage here? Is there there's rumors of a peace deal in the works between the Saudis and the Houthis? But on the other hand, the Houthis could then be the ones that are the saviors, right, and conduct a successful economic war campaign. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, as as listeners may be aware, we are now coming up on the the eight year anniversary since the Saudi led military intervention first began back in March of 2015. And for the past almost a year, there has been a truce in place in Yemen um, between the Houthis and uh, specifically Saudi Arabia, um, as well as the UAE. Um, The truce did expire in October, but both sides have largely held to the terms, things like the Saudis have allowed very limited commercial flights to to operate out of Sana'a International Airport, which previously had been um, closed to commercial flights since 2016. The Saudis have allowed fuel to come in through the port of Hodeida. Um, which is easing the acute fuel shortages that Yemen previously had been experiencing, specifically northern, the former North Yemen under Houthi control. Um, and then just, you know, relatively recently, we did see the very first general container ship was permitted to dock at the port of Hodeida, um, which up to this point, the Saudis had prevented any sort of general cargo or containerized goods um, from from being unloaded at, at Hodeida. So these are all encouraging signs that, you know, it looks like the Saudis really mean it this time, that they really do want to get out of the war. Um, but that would leave the Houthis as, as the militarily the strongest actors on the ground and effectively in control of the former North Yemen. So the only people have who've profited from this war so far, it would seem, uh, the American arms manufacturers, right? Who manufactured the bombs and the planes that dropped the bombs. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's primarily the United States. You know, the UK is also um, a secondary, but, but you know, a significant um, security partner and, and seller of, of weapons to the Saudis. Uh, France has also profited from the sale of weapons that have been used on civilians. But yes, the United States and American military contractors and the the big the big five arms manufacturers have been the real beneficiaries of this horrific war, which, according to the UN, has killed more than four hundred thousand civilians. So, what's the change of heart underway in Saudi Arabia? As much as we know, obviously, it's a dictatorship run by this young punk. Mohammed bin Salman, Jared Kushner's best friend. Right. Well, so the the piece that I just published in the American Prospect, uh, I, I also reference a piece of research that I just produced for the Quincy Institute. And in that, I analyze the extent to which the reason we are seeing this sort of shift from the Saudis and Emiratis that they really do seem to finally want to get out is because the war had become a mutually painful stalemate. So previously, the Saudis and Emiratis were just bombarding and blockading Yemen and weren't really experiencing experiencing um, too much pain on their own end. You know, you had the Houthis lobbing some missiles and drones, but they weren't really having that much of an effect. And it was only um, prior to the, when the truce came into effect last year that we did start to see some more significant attacks. So there were those attacks um, in January of 2022 that hit Abu Dhabi which was the first time Abu Dhabi had been hit by the Houthis, and attacks on oil infrastructure in Saudi Arabia that were were really starting to make it clear that um, if if they were going to continue to to bombard Yemen, they they were going to start to face more consequences for those actions. But the missiles that the Houthis were using originate out of Iran, don't they? 
The to us, yes and no. I mean, so Iran does provide support, although you know the 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 UN and the international community have been united in trying to prevent any sort of arms smuggling um, from from coming from Iran. But you know, they're, they're, the the weapons do do get in anyway, despite those efforts to prevent them. Um, but the Houthis also have access to technology. You know, I mean, the United States was sending weapons to the Yemeni regime under Ali Abdullah Saleh for years uh, for counterterrorism purposes. And the Houthis uh, gained access to all of those weapons when they allied with former President Saleh before they later killed him. Uh, when when he sort of went against <laughs> against their agenda, um, but you know much of the the Yemeni military was sort of absorbed by by the Houthis, um, and so with Iranian help they have been able to uh, use some of that those existing missiles or drones and um, Jerry whether Jerry rig is the right word but but sort of uh, achieve new levels of range and accuracy such that they have been able to target to more effectively target some of these really sensitive oil infrastructure for example in Saudi Arabia so then how much is the are the Houthis Iranian proxies and if so is there any back channel negotiations between Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudis and the Iranians no. So although Iran does, you know, provide some measure of support for for the Houthis, you know, it's very important to keep in mind the extent, the, the much larger scale of the support that the Saudis and the UAE provide to their proxy actors inside Yemen. Things like the Giants Brigades, for example, that are fully funded by the UAE, which these, these sort of Salafist militias that, you know, these many of these militias would not exist at all without this funding and support from foreign actors, whereas the Houthis existed prior to any kind of Iranian involvement. They are a local indigenous group, and much of their legitimacy within, within Yemen comes from the fact that they draw on, they, they are a Zaydi Shia group, which is uh, about 35% of Yemenis are Zaydi Shia. Um, and their their political project is essentially to try to return Yemen to the the political structures and the the sort of cast of people that were in charge prior to Yemen becoming a republic back in the 1960s. So this would prioritize the descendants of the Prophet Muhammad um, that historically had held prominent roles within society, but then under the the conditions of the republic that those individuals had not received the same sort of benefits that they had long enjoyed. So it's essentially this effort to kind of um, take Yemen back several decades to, to how things used to be. Well, but is how much would that kind of Yemeni Houthi theocracy resemble the Iranian theocracy? It wouldn't. You know, the, the Zaydi Shiism is, is quite distinct from the sort of so-called Twelver Shia Islam that is dominant in Iran. Um, again, this is a, a specifically Yemeni uh, religious ideology and, and a, a Yemeni theology, which does not exist in Iran. You know, when I, I recently had the chance to speak with someone inside the Houthi government who was highlighting the extent to which this notion of, of the Houthis as an Iranian proxy has really been used to justify this U.S. support for what Saudi Arabia is doing to the Houthis and to, to Yemen more broadly. Um, because when you say, oh, well, they're, they're Iranian backed, suddenly, you know, the, the horrific 
casualty counts and the, the ways that Saudi Arabia has just been indiscriminately targeting civilians, whether it's through bombings or through, you know, this 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 blockade that is preventing people from from having access to basic necessities uh, that, you know, suddenly that that all seems somehow justifiable if, if Iran is involved. Um, but in general, you know, the, the Houthis are a local indigenous movement. They have roots. Um, you know, they're they're supported by many people in Yemen, not everyone. Certainly there is opposition to the Houthis. But they they also speak to a key constituency of Yemenis and and gain a lot of, le- of legitimacy from fighting uh, foreign aggression, specifically from the Saudis and the Americans. But just to broaden the context here and, and remind our audience uh, and El Shilan that Yemen is one of the poorest countries on the planet, and people have been starving because of a Saudi blockade, and they're being bombed as well by the Saudis, and disease has taken over because hospitals are, have been decimated and medical supplies are, have run out. It's a humanitarian catastrophe. I think the United Nations has said, isn't, have they not, that it's the world's worst humanitarian catastrophe, and that's really saying something. Yes. No, it, it, it really is horrifying. And what's especially horrifying is that even though you, you do have this truce in place, which is, is a positive step, at the same time, we're seeing uh, these big aid organizations like, you know, the World Food Program or um, other other humanitarian organizations that are being forced to cut the aid that they provide for Yemenis because they just don't have the funding for it. And so, you know, obviously in the context of, of other major crises, you thinking of Ukraine, thinking of the, you know, the recent horrific earthquakes in, in Turkey and Syria, um, Yemen is just forgotten. And, you know, several years ago, there were already massive cuts to the aid that was provided. Last year, there were additional cuts. This year, there are going to be more cuts. Um, Secretary of State Blinken announced that the U.S. was going to be providing $444 million this year, but that's actually a 25% decrease from what the U.S. provided last year. And that that then may be followed by 40% decreases. So people are already dying in Yemen, and there's there's less and less resources there to try to help them. Um, so it's it's really truly dire, and um, you know the the world really sh- should not be turning away from what's happening there. So, Anel, I mentioned the relationship between Mohammed bin Salman and Jared Kushner, and as you know, the Republicans uh, are obsessed with Hunter Biden's laptop. Do you think that there's a possibility that as the Republicans pursue this sort of weird obsession they have about Hunter Biden and do these investigations, could the Democrats, and they, I know they've tried and they've offered bills, etc., to find out what really is go- was going on or still is going on in the relationship between MBS and Jared Kushner, who got $2 billion at least, and he maybe got more, from MBS against the advice of Saudi Arabia's own sovereign wealth fund, who didn't think that Jared Kushner was ready to receive that money for his brand new hedge fund outfit. So, you know, if you're in the government and you're the president's son-in-law and you're a special aide to the president, so you're working in government, I mean, and you suddenly get a quid pro quo payoff after you get out of government, uh, along with whatever happened about bailing out the... 666 Fifth Avenue, White Elephant, 
that also happened, and that happened during his White House tenure. There's a fundamental difference between that, surely, and Hunter Biden, who uh, his father wasn't in power at the time, as far as I know. Right. I mean, absolutely. I, I think that the the nature of the relationship between Jared Kushner and, and Mohammed bin Salman, I mean, it's it's patently obvious um, that he, you know, he's benefited hugely from from the the ways that the Trump administration worked to do everything that the Saudis wanted. And the question is, you know, what what else maybe did he promise or what else has been promised if the Trump family does come back into power, um, which could happen. And, you know, we already saw, you know, in terms of Yemen, the extent to which the Trump administration was willing to let the Saudis do whatever they wanted in Yemen. You know, under Biden, we've seen uh, an admirable shift to try to prioritize more diplomacy, although arguably uh, many of the people in Biden's administration had previously signed a letter saying that the U.S. should never have been involved in supporting Saudi aggression in Yemen to begin with, and that you know this this should have ended a long time ago. And so it's frustrating that now these individuals are back in power and they haven't ended U.S. support for for the Saudi war of aggression. Um, but, you know, the question of will there be any sort of accountability coming from the Democrats, I think the moment for that probably passed. I think that should have happened when the Dems controlled the House. Um, and I, I don't necessarily know, unless it came out of Congress, like what what would be the mechanisms there to try to to have some some more degrees of of accountability or understanding of what exactly went on between Kushner and MBS when when Trump was in power. But it does seem that uh, Saudi Arabia, I mean, the scales should have come off everybody's eyes in terms of them being an ally, right? Uh, they're helping out the Russians through OPEC+. Plus. They're cozying after the Chinese. You, you have to pay a premium at the pump because of Saudi Arabia, uh, for the first time ever, has never, hasn't helped out the U.S. in, in spite of <laughs> Biden going there and doing the infamous fist bump. <laughs> right. I mean, absolutely. You know, I, I think that the the way Saudi Arabia has been behaving, you know, specifically going back to the fall when they said they were going to be cutting oil production right before the midterms. And, you know, Biden said that he he wanted Congress to pursue some means of rethinking this relationship and some kind of accountability there. And then we, we saw nothing. Um, so I think, unfortunately, the Biden administration has concluded that the U.S. still needs Saudi Arabia, uh, even though arguably we don't. And, you know, the, the U.S. should really be rethinking that and knowing that increasingly we are going to continue to see countries like Saudi Arabia behaving in this way, that they're maintaining these relationships with countries like Iran and China and yet expecting, uh, you know, unconditional security support from the United States. Uh, and I do think it is really long past time to to rethink that. But, you know, I think there's probably a constituency among Americans for that view. You know, going back to 9-11, going back to, you know, the, the oil embargo from the 1970s, you know, Saudi Arabia has demonstrated time and time again that it is not, in fact, a very good friend to the United States. And I, I think Americans recognize that. And unfortunately, you do have a powerful Saudi lobby here in Washington that is trying to combat that and you know especially under this notion that MBS is sort of transforming Saudi society which he is doing but again it's it's sort of like 
sure, allowing women to drive is is should be just the baseline, <laughs> you know, that, that finally Saudi Arabia not being a, a completely retrograde um, theocracy, you know, that, that that's good. But that's again, that's just sort of the bare minimum. Um, and at the same time, you know, MBS has been locking up hundreds of, of people, many of whom are not, in fact, even dissidents. They're just, you know, they may have expressed some some sort of questioning of, of you know, something on, online and, and they find themselves in jail or, you know, sentenced to, to years in prison. Um, so in general, I, I do think that it is really long past time for the U.S. to to take a hard look at this relationship and ask why do we continue to provide you know, Saudi Arabia remains our biggest customer in terms of of weapon sales. So, I mean, that that sort of answers the question right there. But but the the real question then is why do we let the interests of the arms manufacturers dictate our foreign policy? Well, Anel Sheilan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you again. It's been great to speak with you. And again, I've been speaking with Anel Sheilan, who's a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute and an expert on religious and political authority in the Middle East and North Africa. She's worked as a journalist in Egypt and Yemen and was recently a fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy and is currently completing a book on the strategic use of religious authority in the Arab monarchy since 9-11, focusing on the cases of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Morocco and Oman. And she has an article at the American Prospect Exit Yemen now to assist a fragile peace. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the threadbare state of NATO's military readiness after decades of U.S. pressure to buy American weapons while neglecting manpower, maintenance, and ammunition stockpiles. There ain't no asylum here King Solomon Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Max Bergman, the Director of the Europe Program at the Stewart Center for Euro-Atlantic and Northern European Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Previously, he was a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and served in the U.S. Department of State from 2011 to 2017 in a number of different positions, including as a member of the Secretary of State's Policy Planning Staff, Special Assistant to the Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security, speechwriter to the then Secretary of State John Kerry, and senior advisor to the Assistant Secretary of State for Political Military Affairs. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, Why European Defense Still Depends on America. Don't believe the hype. The war in Ukraine has led to little change. Welcome to Background Briefing, Max Bergman. Great to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Max. And there's been a lot of sort of triumphalism, which may be premature. You even have the chairman of the Joint Chiefs saying that Russia has lost on all counts, listing them losing tactically, strategically, internationally, morally, socially, you name it. But on the other hand, you point out that NATO is in disarray. And let me just quote from your article at Foreign Affairs. The United States is basking in the glow of demonstrating it's indispensably while subtly undercutting common European efforts for defense that mean less profit to American defense companies. 
and NATO is busy creating the illusion of strength by setting unachievable targets such as a 300,000-member ready force when almost none of Europe's tanks seem to work. So I guess in this context, we should be considering ourselves lucky that the Russian military is such a paper tiger. I think so. And, you know, I think the piece is uh, the glass half empty look at European security. I think there is, you know, there is a glass half full take where you look at the Europeans over the last year and uh, and how there have been significant increases in defense spending and commitments to increase defense spending. Europeans do seem to be taking defense a lot more seriously. Sweden and Finland applying to join NATO. And there, there have been real changes. But what the piece tries to really point out is that what's needed is not just some sort of marginal changes around the edges, but real structural reform. And we haven't really seen any deep efforts at transformation. And one of the other things that we're seeing is that, number one, the war has exposed that European militaries were actually far weaker than even that we had even uh, anticipated. That if you look at the, the equipment levels and how much ammunition, for instance, the German military has stockpiled in the case of war, it would last hours, if not days, if it had to do what the Ukrainian military is having to do. Uh, and then the second thing is that it's giving all the equipment that it has, or much of the equipment that it has, away to Ukraine, quite understandably, because Ukraine is fighting its main Europe's main adversary, Russia. So it makes sense what Europeans are doing. But I think you can, you know, safely say that European forces uh, now versus before the war are probably in a weaker state. Uh, and so when NATO throws out these sort of very ambitious targets of we're going to have a go up from 40,000 ready forces to 300,000, uh, it's it's a little bit, it, it's it's sort of a hollow picture that NATO is is painting of, the, of its strength. And what we try to argue with me and my uh, colleague, uh, uh, Sophia Besh from the Carnegie uh, Endowment, uh, is to try to say that, look, we need to sort of take this, we need to paint a clear picture of the current state of European, European militaries. And there's real need for uh, for deeper transformation, not just uh, everyone uh, sort of continuing with the same policies and approaches, really, that they uh, were pursuing before the war. And you point out that Germany has 300 Leopard 2 tanks on paper, but only 130 are operational. And in Spain, they also have 300 Leopard tanks, but one third of them are no longer active and are largely in disrepair. So does that explain why Germany has promised a lot and been incredibly slow to deliver? I think so. And I think that explains uh, a lot of the slowness on a, a lot of Europeans. Look, is it on paper? You look at it and say, okay, we have all these tank reserves. But then those tanks that may have been sitting in warehouses, maybe they were sitting out in the open in Spain and baking in the sun. You know, what happens if you leave a car out in the sun uh, for not just years, but, you know, perhaps a decade? You know, things break in it. it things get rusted out. There's uh, some of the wiring doesn't work anymore. And what we're seeing is that the, the reserve stockpiles that European forces had in the case of war, uh, you know, weren't being maintained. And this is this is true throughout Europe. And one of the things that gets cut first is the maintenance budget, is the budget to buy ammunition that, you know, militaries always want to buy the, the new shiny equipment. Uh, procurement offices and in, in all of the various ma uh, ministries of defense 
want to be modernizing their militaries. And so there's money that is thrown toward procurement, rightfully so. But really what, what is, I think, the, the, the real sign of a strong military is its, uh, its overall equipment levels, its overall state of readiness. And the state of readiness of European forces, i.e. their ability to fight tonight, or you know, if you're going to deploy forces suddenly to defend the Baltics, could, you know, what, what forces would Europe have to call upon? And the answer is it, not many. And I think this is partly due to the, the, how NATO is sort of structured as both a political and military enterprise. From a military enterprise, it works great. It, it's coordinating forces. Uh, it, it makes sure all countries work together. But it does create sometimes the illusion that militaries are simply multilateral exercises in, in providing a commitments, uh, whether or not those can actually be provided uh, practically or not. And I think there's a, a need to, to really rethink the entire European defense enterprise and how it's structured. Uh, and we point to, in, in particular, a potential role for the European Union, which has largely been uh, cut out and, and kept out of, of European defense. So go further, if you will, uh, Max, in terms of what you think the EU could do to supplement NATO. Well, one of the biggest challenges that we point out uh, to European defense is that it's not just it doesn't have uh, sort of one Pentagon uh, that determines national that determines procurement and makes uh, acquisitions of weapon systems. It has, you know, more than 25, 27 different EU members, 30 NATO members. Uh, and NATO's job isn't really to coordinate uh, different procurement. NATO says we need, you know, air defense or we need, you know, these ground forces. It doesn't really uh, uh, you know, direct countries to buy certain equipment. That is not NATO's role. Uh, and so what we see is that Europe has a degree of bureaucratic, you know, chaos, frankly, where it's really hard for countries to work together when it comes to defense procurements, to have one uh, a defense ministry work with another on what they're going to buy and how that weapon system is going to be uh, fielded. It's really difficult to determine when you're making an acquisition, let's say you're buying an airplane, well, how much of that plane is built in your country versus your neighbor's country? And so it's just very difficult. And so the default is that national defense ministries, if they're not really being pushed, will just, you know, support themselves. Uh, and that what that leads to is a degree of cacophony. It leads to um, a lack of economies of scale. But, you know, the thing is, this, this problem of European cooperation seems insolvable when it comes to defense, yet in every other sector, it has been solved. And it's been solved through the integrated power of the European Union, where the EU in every other sector besides defense, essentially, it has forced countries uh, economically to integrate. It has created common rules, common procurement procedures, common methodologies, common systems that then has led to the creation of a single market, a common market. But that has not occurred in defense. And one of the things that we argue is that instead of the United States being so focused on uh, increasing European defense spending, something that's necessary for to happen, uh, but what the United States should also do is push Europeans to work more together. And that isn't something the United States has not done as of yet. We haven't pushed for European defense integration We've merely pushed European states to spend more. And when a bunch of 20, you know, more than 25 states spend in all different directions, you're going to have much, much less bang for your euro than if they spend that in a coordinated 
uh, fashion. Well, Max Bergen, a lot of my friends uh, on the left keep saying, you know, this war is really just a bonanza for the military-industrial complex. And many even feel that that's what it's all about. And somehow Putin is blameless and we're all exploiting the situation to the last uh, Ukrainian. But what you're pointing out is something quite different. It's that the, the military-industrial complexes, plural, in Europe aren't coordinated and they really haven't been spending any money. And now, I guess the U.S. is ramping up. One of the statistics I heard that was just so extraordinary is that the Ukrainians fire as many 155-millimeter howitzers in one day as the U.S. factories produce in a month. Yep. Now, the Estonians try to coordinate the manufacture of artillery shells, and that apparently didn't go that well. What's the status on that? Well, there's a, a meeting right now in Stockholm uh, with the European defense ministers. They, they meet uh, every once in a while. And the Estonians, uh, normally skeptical of EU defense efforts, have said, well, we really need to coordinate our purchases uh, of, of uh, 155 millimeter shells of ammunition. Uh, and, you know, the thing we have to remember is, is the EU during COVID uh, did this with vaccines. Right. The issue at the time was every country in the world wanted vaccines. And that included all 27 different all 27 members of the European Union. And the problem for the EU would be if, you know, if it was every country for themselves, that would mean Germany, which is one of the richest countries or Sweden, would quickly you know, spend more, buy all the vaccines, vaccinate their population first. And then countries like Bulgaria that have less economic capacity. Uh, would be left in the lurch. And then the European Union, with its single market, uh, could citizens from Bulgaria travel to Germany? It would be uh, it would be put it under a lot of strain. And so the EU made a decision, no, we're going to buy as one. We're going to get economies of scale. We're going to negotiate the price down because if we work together, if we do it as one, we'll get a better price. And if everybody runs in different directions, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, and then the vaccine was distributed to every country proportionally. Uh, so Germans got vaccinated at the same rate as, as anyone else. Uh, and it was a real moment of European solidarity, showed what the EU could do collectively. And Estonians have essentially said, instead of everyone going and trying to make their own separate bids for ammunition, let's just work together as the European Union and do one big acquisition. Now, if you can do that with artillery, there's no reason that you couldn't do that with tanks as well. And one of the things, to your point, as um, uh, about the European Defense Industrial Base, is you know, we we highlight a, a quote from a major uh, tank manufacturer in Germany that manufactures the Leopard tanks, that they're still waiting for the orders to really ramp up production. And you know we know that they're going to have to ramp up production because Europeans are giving away the tanks, but yet Europe hasn't worked collectively to put in the contracts or the orders to sp spend the money as one to really get that process going. And I think that's what the Estonians are pointing to and and in doing so, th this will also, I think, in the long run, really strengthen the European Union and shows the role that you can play uh, in defense. So address, if you will, Max, then this notion that this is a bonanza for the military industrial complex, which what you're writing, it contradicts entirely that uh, its defense industrial base is moribund and hollow, and they're frantically playing catch up for for not for gold-plated things like the F-35, which is what most of our money seems to go on, 
but for really sort of basic things like ammunition. I mean, at this point, yeah. my understanding is that the Russians are trying to draw the Ukrainians into the Bakhmut quagmire, but they're holding back their main forces for a spring offensive as they train up on the equipment that they're getting. But they're only getting about 30 Leopard tanks. And they do have a, they have different artillery because they started out with Soviet stuff. So they've been able to get some supplies from uh, Romania and Bulgaria that have Soviet stuff, but they've pretty much run out. As you point out, the French are providing the howitzers, but they're running out of, of ammunition for them. So at this point, it looks as if the Ukrainian B team that's holding uh, Bakhmut have done remarkably well. Yeah. while their A-team trains up. But I'm not sure that they're going to have the numbers and the equipment that's necessary to drive the Russians out of, uh, I don't know whether they could ever drive them out of Crimea, but out of the rest of the country. That seems to be the plans for the spring offensive. Yeah, and, and you know, to your point about the defense industrial bonanza, I mean, look, in, in any time there's a war and there's a demand for defense equipment, uh, there there's profiteering and profits that happen for defense companies. But this is not a case where uh, just because there's a conflict that that defense industries are saying, well, you know, the United States needs to be investing in all this fancy new weaponry that or the United States or Europe that has really nothing to do with the conflict at at hand. What the Ukraine war has been a wake up call uh, for the defense industry and for uh, the United States, for the Pentagon and for all for almost all European countries is that war is an industrial exercise that requires having lots of stockpiles of munitions. Um, and you never want to be in a war, but in some ways it's like having a life insurance policy. And right now, the, Europe doesn't have a life insurance policy. It doesn't have an ability to go to the uh, into to storage sites and pull out ammo that it would need if it was being uh, attacked or invaded. Uh, and when you talk about the Ukrainians, what is happening is that the Ukrainians are expending a ton of munitions because there's a ton of munitions being expended back at them. And so when we think about the tanks for Ukraine, what's really critical is that these tanks in some ways are meant to replace tanks that have already been provided. Uh, old Soviet era tanks from Poland and from other countries have already been provided to Ukraine. But, but equipment gets shot at, gets damaged in war. Uh, and so these tanks will probably hopefully help uh, uh, aid uh, Ukrainian forces. They'll be a bit more advanced, um, but they're going to get they're also going to get damaged and destroyed. And so then, you know, what what comes after that? And that's why it's really important to have the production lines running, because then Ukrainians are going to need more. They're going to need additional equipment. And this seems this may seem to go on and on and on. But what we are what we are seeing right now in this war is that the Russians are also running short of supplies and munitions, and they're running through their tanks and missiles. And we forget that wars are really competitions of industrial complexes. And Russia will lose this war if Ukraine is fighting with the West, because Russia cannot really compete with us uh, if we really provide Ukraine with the support that it's needed. And as Russian, as the Russian military equipment is getting worse, partly due to sanctions and export controls and limits on their defense industrial production, Ukraine's forces are getting stronger because they're getting modern Western equipment. And so the way to end this war, and it's become a bit of a cliche, 
is to really support the Ukrainian military so that it has the ability to continue to, to mount offenses and to take back more territory. And when you talk about the uh, Russian offensive, I think we're seeing it right now. I don't think there's another big Russian force in reserve. I think what we're seeing is this is the Russian offensive. The hope is the Ukrainians can absorb it as they are doing rather successfully, despite some sort of small tactical losses here and there, such as potentially in Bakhmut. But that as more equipment flows to them, they will be able to really go on the offensive. Because the one thing we have seen with modern warfare, with really the way the United States has, um, has innovated over the last 30 years, is through precision, is th that we don't need, you know, when we send our forces to fight, it is the precision. It is the ability to hit targets and hit them in a dynamic way, move, whether they're moving or not. Uh, and that's what we're, the capabilities we're providing the Ukrainians. And so the hope is that uh, with precision weaponry that Ukrainians are able to hit Russian targets and continue to advance. So, you know, the Ukrainians were invaded. They're trying to take their country back. And we really do have the means to really shift the balance of this war because, and we have the evidence to prove that because we already have uh, uh, helped shift the balance of this war over the last year. Well, just in closing, you know, essentially the, the Ukrainians are lucky that Russia is such a corrupt mafia state and the, and the military was a part of that corruption. They're bogged down in Ukraine and not getting anywhere. And But on the other hand, if they were any less corrupt, then they would pose a threat to the Baltic states. And as you pointed out, Max, if they really did threaten the Baltic states, there's not a lot in the inventory on the NATO side to deal with that threat. So all in all, I guess, just in closing, uh, Russia's a paper tiger and NATO is what, a cardboard tiger or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> Give me your assessment. Well, quickly. I mean, NATO is the strongest military alliance in history, but that's partly that's in large part because the United States is is in it. And I think the question that we have to ask ourselves, and I think this is the question Europeans have to ask themselves, is that uh, whether we want that that uh, situation to remain as it is. Now, it may seem uh, on its face. Of course, we don't. Of course, we want Europe to be stronger and more you know, independent to sort of have strategic autonomy. Um, but in fact, you know, a lot of U.S. policy over the last th 30 years has been focused on maintaining the indispensable role of the United States in Europe. And so as much as we complain about European weakness, we also get very nervous when Europeans start to uh, get a little bit stronger. And, 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 and this is in particular uh, with the EU, that the United States has opposed EU defense efforts uh, really for the last 25 years, uh, and has done so because it is nervous about, uh, it sees the EU as potentially competing with NATO. I think this is largely nonsense, and the U.S. has been focused on, uh, frankly, selling a lot of weapons to Europe, uh, and every time we, we do an arms sale to Europe and sort of essentially deprive the Europeans of their own market, we're actually probably weakening European defense uh, indirectly. So I think there's a need for a rethink, a need for a new approach. I think this is where we should really get on board with the Europeans and try to push the Europeans to act as more as one on defense. Because to, to maybe just to close, you know, Russia looks like a paper tiger right now. But the thing that we have seen from Russia time and time again is it has a continuous desire to be really relevant geopolitically. And it will seek to modernize its forces or shift its defense approach. I could see Russia adopting kind of an Iranian-style strategy going forward, where it has nuclear weapons to deter us from uh, doing any activity, but really develops an asymmetric capability to really cause havoc in Europe and elsewhere around the world. 
So I don't think the threat from Russia is really going to go away, even if Russian forces are being ground down uh, in Ukraine, and that we have a window now to really get uh, our act together, Europe's act together. Uh, uh, and I think we need to really seize that moment. Well, Max Bergman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Max Bergman, who's the director of the Europe program at the Stewart Center for Euro-Atlantic and Northern European Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Previously, he was a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and served in the U.S. State Department from 2011 to 2017 in a number of different positions, including as a member of the Secretary of State's Policy Planning Staff, Special Assistant to the Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security, speechwriter to then Secretary of State John Kerry, and Senior Advisor to the Assistant Secretary of State for Political, Political Military Affairs. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, Why European Defense Still Depends on America, Don't Believe the Hype. The war in Ukraine has led to little change. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.
Time will not in America. Time will not in America. 